Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 32. If we could stand for the reading of God's word. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the synod of the people of Israel and sent them to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You may be seated. You know, in the, uh, in the world, my experience, I, I would assume that you have had the same experience, the world kind of portrays Christians as snowflakes. You know, they're, they're, they're weaklings. Hollywood basically paints Christians as these panty waists that won't take a stand for much. And in fact, you know, if you're really a Christian, you should have like this unthinking, blind faith in things and just go along and get along and, and never have a particularly strong opinion. In fact, I don't know if you've also had this experience, what some people will do that are unbelievers is if you do have an opinion that is based on the Bible and you speak to that opinion, they will try to use something biblical against you. Well, hey, you're not supposed to judge, aren't you? Aren't you one of those people you're not supposed to judge? Or they'll say, hey, uh, you're, aren't you supposed to turn the other cheek? They're just plucking something out of context and trying to apply it to a Christian. And so they're trying to keep Christians in their box, quiet, where they belong. But Jesus, the same person who 
said, who had something to say about not judging and is also the same person that had something to say about when to turn the other cheek, he's the same person that when publicly confronting his enemies pronounced woes on them in front of everyone, referring to them as lawless hypocrites, as deadly vipers, and as tombs that are full of dead men's bones. Now, I imagine that there are some of, among us here who don't have any trouble. You're, you're that kind of person that has no trouble at all getting in the face of an unbeliever. You know, you're like, bring it on. But I suspect that most of us tend toward not wanting to create any kind of a scene. If anything, if something comes up where all of, all of the sudden religion becomes a topic, and not only religion, but it even comes to talking about Jesus in some way, that we find ourselves kind of shrinking back a little bit. And, you know, we, in, in fact, if you think about it, every week in our own prayer service, we have printed in the prayer sheet um, the passage that tells us that we are supposed to pray for kings and to pray for peoples and to pray for people in high positions so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. That is what we desire. We as Christians, we want to be able to worship and we want to lead this peaceful and quiet life. And so I think most of us hear that and we say, yes, that's exactly what I want. And those are good things. And obviously we want to follow that command to pray for those in high positions so that we can, in fact, lead a peaceful and quiet life. However, if we were to say there was a spectrum of when to stand up for Jesus, and we look at it as on one end of the spectrum is kind of a, well, I could, that may even move, if you move the needle just a little bit, you know, you're trying to use wisdom to say, well, not only could I, Maybe I should in this circumstance. All the way over to the other end of the spectrum is there is a time when you absolutely must take a stand for Christ. There is a time where there is no wiggle room, that you are required, you are obligated to stand up for Jesus. And our text today examines that end of the spectrum. It has something to say about the times that we have absolutely no other option when it is our duty to stand up for Jesus. And so what I'm hoping happens is that by the end of this message, you have something to hang your hat on that you can say, well, I have all of these other areas of my life and these other circumstances that may require wisdom as to know when to be very vocal about standing up for Christ, but there is this one spot where there just is no question. And I want you to be able to walk out of here today to know when that time is. And it comes to us in the form, Wayne just read it for us, it comes to us in the form of a story. We get a narrative that shows how this plays out. 
And so our story begins, and, and I don't know if you've used the phrase, um, the phrase, it, uh, it comes actually from silent films originally, and we continue to use it today, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, and they used it in silent films originally, and I think it still holds true today, to, to create a segue, where there's an initial scene that's taking place, and then it would pop up on the silent film, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and it would go to show the second scene, but it's identifying the fact that two things are happening that are overlapping, and that there might be more going on than meets the eye. Now, to my knowledge, there are no Greek words that have been translated into, meanwhile, back at the ranch. However, I believe in the second half of verse 21 of Acts chapter 5, where it has the word now, you could essentially put in there that phrase, where it says, now when the high priest came, you could essentially say, if we were going to impose our English, you know, idea back into this is meanwhile back at the ranch when the high priest came and then the story carries on from there and so what's happened is by Luke writing in this way by him writing about the first scene that's taking place in those preceding verses and then where he says now or as I'm putting it meanwhile back at the ranch what he's doing is he is showing that there are these two scenes that are overlapping and that there are actually two opposing forces that are working against each other simultaneously. Now, in the book of Acts, we know, we know that in all of Scripture, and no less in the book of Acts, that Christ is the crown jewel, it's the center bullseye of everything that's being communicated, but in this post-resurrection, Christ is now gone up to be seated at the right hand of the Father at this early church, this creation of the early church, we essentially have two groups of our, we have our protagonists and our antagonists, right? Our protagonists, the, essentially the good guys are the apostles that are, that are the foundation of the church, they're beginning this thing. And then we have our antagonists, the religious leaders. And so Acts begins uh, with the protagonists. And remember, the amazing thing that happens to them is that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They then go on to begin to um, perform all kinds of miracles with that power. They begin to teach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now, they're doing it a whole lot more accurately because they have the Holy Spirit and things have been revealed to them that they didn't know during the, the time of the Gospels when they were physically with Jesus. So all of this is happening in the timeline of the early church with our protagonists. And of course, we focus our attention on them because they're the good guys. They are, in fact, the protagonists. However, when we, when we shift focus and we look at the antagonists and we look at the religious leaders and when they enter the picture, I want you to see the progression that takes place. And we, uh, we first see them enter the scene, as it were, in chapter 4 and in verses 1 and 2. So we have the apostles that are 
participating as the, as the means, as God's means of creating that initial church. They're still in Jerusalem where all these things took place. They're proclaiming the gospel of Christ. But as that is happening in Acts 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, so those are the apostles, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So we see they now enter the picture and we have the fact that they are greatly annoyed that this is taking place. And you move down to chapter four and verse seven, and it says, and when they had set them in the midst, so these are our antagonists, the religious leaders had set the apostles in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they've now shifted from being greatly annoyed to now they've ramped up to actually calling the apostles to be in front of them, and they're questioning the authority, um, publicly questioning their authority to proclaim these things. And then it moves on down to chapter 4 and verse 18. So they, again, these are our antagonists, verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So now it's culminated from being greatly annoyed it's moved on to the point of um, calling them out to say, hey, what gives you the right to say any of this? Now they've progressed in 4.18 to say, you need to stop entirely. That's what they've been ordered to do. And all of that precedes then what we see happening in chapter 5. In those preceding verses, in uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, and then it culminates right there in 17 and 18. So if you're following me with this progression of what's happening with these antagonists, at chapter 5, verse 17, it says, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So you see this ramping up, this increase of hostility, by this particular group of men. So what the religious leaders do know at this point is that they're becoming, what started as being greatly annoyed has gotten to the point that they're downright angry and they're jealous of what the apostles are doing. And so what is their response? It is to take the authority that they have in their positions as leaders and to have the apostles arrested and thrown into jail. What they do not know at this particular time, halfway through verse 21, is that the apostles have since been released by the angel of the Lord and have been told to return right back to where they were to publicly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's in that ignorance that these religious leaders choose to do what they're doing halfway through in that second half of verse 21, where it says, Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. So he doesn't know, the high priest, the, the biggest cheese of all of these religious leaders, have no idea that the apostles have actually been set free and that they are doing the very thing that they've been told not to do. 
And so they go about the business, the high priest goes about the business of calling all of his minions together. So he's calling together the chief priests and also of the Senate of the people of Israel to essentially create a tribunal. He wants to put the apostles on public trial. You could say that the high priest is both literally and figuratively creating a scene. Settings matter, right? Settings matter. My, uh, my younger son got, a, um, he got his undergraduate degree through Arizona State University, and then he went on to work on a master's degree through the University of Minnesota, and it was facilitated through ASU, but it, he actually got the degree, and all the coursework took, took place through the University of Minnesota. Now, when he finished the course of instruction and was set to receive his diploma for, for having a master's degree, they held a graduation ceremony in Minneapolis. Many of the members of his family, his siblings and his parents, we traveled to Minneapolis to celebrate with him as he walked during his graduation in Minneapolis. And the reason that we did that, because if he had not participated, he still would have received his degree. They would have mailed it to him, the actual piece of paper. It didn't affect the fact that he was getting a degree. The reason that he wanted to walk and the reason that his family wanted to travel there to participate with him in that is because there is something significant about the setting itself. You are actually physically there. You're participating in a ceremony so that everybody can see what's going on and it adds much more you know, gravity to the, the situation and what it is that you have achieved by participating, by walking in this ceremony. And we all understand that. That's the kind of thing that families do for each other. And if you think of a, an environment or a setting that comes automatically with some sense of authority or that feeling of gravitas before the first word is ever said, it's a courtroom. Even our courtrooms today, you know what those courtrooms look like. The judge is sitting front and center, right? He is the centerpiece of what's going on. Not only is he seated in the middle, he's elevated. He's put in a, higher, a position physically higher than the people that he's talking to. They'll be on either side of him, the way that we do it here. There'll be an American flag, and because we're in Arizona, on the other side of him, uh, there'll be a, a, state of a flag for the state of Arizona. So there he is. As soon as you walk in the court, you are looking at the judge, where the judge sits. You see that he's elevated. He's between two flags. And in fact, behind him in most courtrooms will be a large seal of the state of Arizona as well. And so this entire setting, before the judge even walks through the door to take his seat, has, um, has this sense, this gravitas that comes with it that you are in an environment in which authority is going to be exercised. The high priest knows this. And this is exactly the scenario that he is trying to create. Because not only is he literally creating a scene, 
but he is figuratively creating a scene in which he has leverage. He wants it to be public. He wants there to be those that support him nearby so that there is a clear show of authority of his position as he brings these men, the apostles, before him so that he can essentially or maybe even literally look down on them and to cast judgment. All of his jealous anger has been channeled into the production of this public trial. And now that he's got all of his people, and now that he's created this perfect scene that he wants to take place, he calls for the prisoners. And of course, it's here, once the prisoners have been called for, that the two scenes begin to merge together and things become revealed. In verse 22, we see that it's the prison officials that had been sent to go get the apostles <laughs> have to come back and report to the chief priests. So he hasn't made it to, the, the, the word hasn't made it to the high priest yet. The officers report back to the chief priests, to the chief priests and to the captain of the temple. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. They had to report the, this news. And then what's particularly helpful is in verse 24, it says, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So the group of chief of, of uh, priests and then also the captain of the temple hear this, they are greatly perplexed, wondering what this is going to come to, and I suggest that they had to have had at least two things going through their mind, and the first just has to be, uh, you know, face value here, uh-oh, what are we going to tell the high priest? I mean, he's the one that called this whole thing to order. He's the one that's created this scene. What are we going to tell the high priest, and what does this mean for me? Is this going to cost me my job? Is this going to cost me my life? You know, all of these things are hanging out there. So I grant that that has to be the first thing that is perplexing them. Um, like, where do we go from here? But then the second thing is that if they are perplexed and they're wondering what this would come to, I would also suggest that they are realizing that a miracle has taken place. They are realizing something miraculous has taken place. Now, I have mentioned this in the past. I don't know if you remember it, but God, anytime there is a miracle, God does not perform miracles because he is in the business of giving out random acts of kindness, okay? Of course, when he heals the blind and he gives hearing to the deaf or he gives speech to the mute or he uh, gives... Um, strength to the lame, praise God that they have all of those physical benefits that are legitimate, that they get to enjoy those things. That is not the main thing. God provides miracles for very specific reasons. And I would even suggest that even though the miracle here included not just their improvement in life circumstances, so they didn't have to sit in a jail, 
and that it also was not exclusive to the fact that the angel of the Lord also told them to go back and to preach the gospel, to go right back to doing that. That is a lofty calling, and it is a, certainly a godly directive for them to have to go do that. But I am saying there's even more than that to it. Remember that any time that God is performing a miracle himself through you know, Christ or through the prophets or, in this case, through the apostles, he is doing it for the purpose of verifying the authenticity of the messenger and the message that they carry. So hopefully you're following me here. If they are hearing, wait a minute, these guys that we were going to put on trial have, been, have miraculously been released. That means that what they're saying might just be true. Now, I can't imagine that the political and cultural implications of all of these things um, were lost on these religious leaders on the uh, chief priests and on the captain of the temple. But just to make it clear, look at what happens in verse 25. And someone, so here we got a random person that clearly had heard or knew that the apostles had returned to preaching the word or uh, proclaiming the gospel back publicly. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, are you catching that? This guy, who has no authority whatsoever, he is unnamed. This is a nobody that comes to them. They're already greatly perplexed and wondering what all this is coming to. And if they're thinking rightly about the fact that this is miraculous and they're realizing, oh no, what if what the message they're bringing is true? If all of that isn't enough weight to carry as it is, here comes this nobody that says, ha, you guys are the ones that put him in jail, and they're back there doing the very thing that you told them not to do. So what started as this, as this um, effort to bring the apostles under a public examination to scrutinize them has now flipped. The script is flipped and has now instantaneously become an indictment of the religious leaders. The high priest and all those that were with him that stood against Jesus now find themselves standing accused and humiliated. Now, we get to how things actually start to work out in verse 26 because now the captain of the temple and his officers have to go ask the apostles if they would be willing to come to this tribunal that's all been put together. Hey, we kind of got this whole thing going on. Um, I'm going to be in a whole lot of trouble. I've got all this worldly authority bearing down on me, and now I've got to go ask the apostles if they would be willing to come and still report to court. The apostles actually assent to this. You know, they 
I imagine they didn't have to do that. At this point, they had everything on their side, right? They've got, you do realize that an angel of the Lord let us out of the jail that you put us in. And so that's why we're back here. But they choose to uh, go along with the captain of the temple and the officers who did not want to be stoned by the crowd who clearly saw this miracle had taken place because the, uh, the, the, the accusation pr previously was public. They were put in a public jail and now they're back to preaching publicly. So now it's the entire public that recognizes themselves that this is all miraculous. And so they are prepared to stone the officials. But the, the apostles go ahead and go with him and go to this tribunal, to this courtroom setting. And the high priest, who did, hasn't had to deal with any of this at this point, is completely undeterred. He is unfazed by this uh, by the fact, by this miracle, and, and we see that because he continues in verse 28 with his accusation. So here's the high priest. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So he's saying you continue to teach when we told you not to, and by the way, you're trying to say that we're the ones that killed that man. He essentially is, is created the charge of a contempt of counsel. We told you not to do something and you did it. How dare you? You violated what it is that we told you not to do. You are not being submissive to our authority. And it's right here in this story, in this narrative account, that we reach the climax of everything that is taking place. And it's here that we get the answer to the question, to the, to the topic that I brought up at the very beginning, which is on that spectrum that shifts all the way over to when must, all caps, must stand up for Jesus, here it is. And it's the apostles, it's Peter and the apostles that put their finger right on the sore spot that touched the very thing that is at issue. The answer, when I, uh, the answer that they give is in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. So, what is at issue here is obedience. Think back on the narrative for just a second. Now, I was laboring the point of that, of when the antagonists, the religious leaders entered the scene and how there was this mounting hostility that, that, that was taking place that led to this particular moment. They went from greatly annoyed and then graduated to publicly questioning the authority that the apostles had to do what they were doing. Then it moved on to being filled with jealousy to the point that they were arresting and throwing them in prison. The apostles knew about all of that, right? They knew, they had to have known that the religious leaders were annoyed with them. They certainly knew that they were standing before these earthly authorities and having to report out why 
uh, about the authority that they had to do what they were doing, and they obviously knew that they were filled with jealousy because they were thrown in prison. And yet, even during this growing animosity of those that were opposed to Christ, they did not take preemptive measures to stand up against and to defy those authorities. Are you following me? They knew all those things, and they did not draw the line. They themselves, as they're proclaiming Christ, did not turn their attention toward the authorities and defy them openly, even though each of those things were happening and that were directly opposing what they were doing and what God is about and in expanding the kingdom. However, when the high priest looked at them and said, you are not doing what we strictly charged you to do, that's when they said, we must obey God rather than men. So even in our own lives, when we are trying to make these determinations, when am I required to stand up for Christ? We need to keep the concept of obedience squarely in view. The apostles did not take these preemptive measures. They didn't say, well, hold on a second. If I don't insert myself in the process over here, you know, what may happen is that if you follow it, its logical course, something extra bad is going to happen down the line. Therefore, I have to take a stand over here so that those bad things don't happen down there. We need to be careful taking on some kind of slippery slope theology where we pick a fight when it really has nothing to do with obedience. Now, don't get me wrong. There is, going back to my analogy of the spectrum, there is wisdom that needs to be exercised, and there are times to absolutely stand up and to proclaim Christ and that you're going to, there's going to be conflict, and there is plenty of room for that. What I'm doing is I'm trying to focus on the end of the spectrum that says, but when is there no other choice? Let's, let's at least clarify when we can remove all other options, when there is an absolute duty. And I would say that it is when obedience is on the line. God is the one that can choose to, he, he holds the heart of kings in his hand and turns it as he wishes. He, if he wants to to change the laws so that it makes for a, a, you know, a, a country that is living generally more consistently with biblical virtue, then praise, the God for, praise God for that. And we should be involved to the degree that, it's, that, that we can responsibly. But when we talk about defying and taking a defiant stance, what we need to make sure or what we can be sure of to be on solid ground is to ask the question, am I being asked to disobey God? Up to and including when the high priest called um, all those that follow him and to call the Senate of the people of Israel and he put together this tribunal, he, the apostles continued to proclaim 
the gospel of Jesus Christ in obedience to the command that they got. Because the angel of the Lord told them to do that. Hey, I'm gonna, you're going to be released, and I want you to go right back to what you were doing before. So they were focused on one thing, and it was obedience. This is what we're told to do. This is what I'm going to do. And it was not until that issue of obedience was raised in the courtroom that the apostles actually objected. And we see this as well in chapter 4, back in verse 19. Because um, I, I read to you verse 18, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That is another command not to obey. So obedience is on the line, and we see in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. So he's, again, defying the authorities, the earthly authorities, when obedience is what is called into question. The other thing that I want to point out here about the apostles and their decision to defy the authority that was in front of them, because I think it, 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 it's important for us to realize, hey, if we find ourselves in a position where we have to do this, obedience is on the line, I want to look at how it is that they actually defied the authority. They did it unwaveringly. They did it uncompromisingly. They did it definitively. They did it with conviction. They were not ashamed of obeying Christ. So none of us, uh, I, I think the majority of us, don't want to be in the position where we are forced into this. And yet we find ourselves in, this, in these positions at times where obedience is on the line. Not only do you have a duty to stand up for Jesus, you have a model of how that should take place, which is to do it with absolute conviction and without being ashamed. Look at how it is that they do it. They respond not only by saying we must obey God rather than men. In verse 30 and 31, that says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. So he's all, already appealing to uh, the prophets and, and those of the Old Testament that predate these religious leaders. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. So he threw it, Peter and the apostles put it right back on them. You killed by hanging on a tree. And then he continues to present the gospel. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So they are standing unequivocally, they're taking their duty seriously, and they're saying, no, I must obey God rather than men. And by the way, here's a little gospel message for you as well. This is where forgiveness is found. And then they add in on top of that a legal argument, um, because if anything is going to be true, it must be based on two witnesses. And so they add in there these two witnesses in verses uh, in verse 32, where it says, and we are witnesses to these things, and here's your second witness, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I mean, this very succinct answer that they give demonstrates that they 
are going to stand on the solid ground, ground of obeying God rather than men, that they are going to present their own case by providing witnesses to what they're saying is true, and they're going to do all of it in an unflagging, unfaltering way with conviction. So I'll just recap it with this. I'll just boil it all the way down. I was going through it the way that it's laid out in Scripture because it's in a narrative fashion. Now I just want to give it to you straight. A Christian life is going to come. If you live a biblically consistent life, you're like, no, this is, I'm, I believe the Bible, and so I'm just going to do what the Bible says to do, and I'm not going to do what the Bible says not to do. And if you live that way, you are going to find that you run up against all kinds of ridicule from people. We're back to the beginning where I said people will think that you have blind faith, that you're unthinking, and, you know, all these, you know, you're against science or whatever, all kinds of baloney and things like that. You are not required to make sure that you stand up for your own honor. Your requirement is to stand up for Jesus. And you are obligated to stand up for Jesus if at any point you are commanded not to do something required that God requires or you are forbidden to do you are commanded to do something that God forbids or you are forbidden to do something that God requires. It, I mean, it really is that straightforward. If you want to know where am I just absolutely, I, I've got no wiggle room, that duty kicks in, it has to do with obedience. You're being asked to do something that you know for a fact that the Bible says you should not do, or you're being prohibited from doing something that you know for a fact that the Bible commands you to do. You know, it's not only the world that, that inappropriately grabs that turn-the-other-cheek phrase and uses it against Christians. I think Christians do the same thing for themselves. Sometimes we get up close to this conflict and we see what's going on, and we take this attitude of, well, maybe I should just turn the other cheek here because I don't want to make waves. I don't want to make a scene. I don't want to defy authority. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that girl. I, you know, I don't want to be that person, and God has called us to be meek and mild. And I would tell you that that is an inappropriate use of that sentiment and of that command, and instead, you should keep in mind what it says in Luke 9, verse 26. And these are very difficult words, very difficult. Luke 9, 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. God forbid that we end up in that camp, that we are ashamed, that we play some kind of uh, turn-the-other-cheek card when really the, we're ashamed. How about instead we see that it is, um, if it is a matter of obedience, that we must obey God rather than man? We don't have to be jerks, but we don't have to be ashamed. We can stand absolutely on conviction that what we're doing brings honor to the Lord because ultimately what we want to do is to have 
unwavering obedience so that we can say, right along with Paul, just as he was ending, uh, as his life was coming to a close, the final uh, epistle that he wrote was 2 Timothy, and in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, these are some of his final sentiments. So this is what we're aiming for. When we stand on this solid ground and we just say, no, Lord, I'm going to do it with conviction, it's because we want to say the same thing that Paul is saying. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but, to all, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is what we have to gain when we see, when we recognize clearly what we must do, when we must stand up for Jesus, and what it is that we will have when we stand with conviction on that solid ground. Let's pray. Lord, this, are, this is the desire of our heart, to be able to recite the same thing that Paul has said, that when the end comes that we have finished the race, we have kept the faith, Lord. Help us, first of all, to always have wisdom to know when we should say something, to know what it is that we should say. But Lord, help us to have the courage that when we are faced with a world that looks us square in the eye and says, we told you not to do what the Bible is telling you to do, that we would have the courage, the conviction to stand and say, but I must obey God rather than men. May we see it clearly. May we decide definitively. May we act with conviction so that we might too receive that crown of life. In Jesus' name, amen.